And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. A man on an ocean liner was leaning over the edge, right? And he's sitting there flipping something and catching it. Just flipping it and catching it. Bypasser walks by and says, Hey, what are, what, are you, what are you tossing there and catching? And he goes, Oh, it's a diamond. Very valuable. It's a quarter. Uh, it's a diamond. It's a very valuable diamond. It's, 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 you know, it's my life. And uh, the person says, well, aren't you afraid that you're going to drop it? And he goes, oh, no, I've been, I've, been, I've been throwing it. Excuse me, there you go. I've been, I've been tossing it for the past half hour and haven't dropped it once. And the person looked at him and says, well, do you think there might be a last time? And he smiles and he tosses it one more time. And, and for a second, he's just stunned. And he says, lost, lost, all is lost. Now, you can say, you know, obviously that story's not true, but it is true for many people. The ocean is eternity. Once you're there, you're there. Okay? The, the, uh, they're on the vessel of life. That would be the boat. That diamond is their soul. It's the most precious thing that any person possesses. If they do not know Christ as their personal Savior... They're taking great risk because every day could be like that last toss. It could be their last day on this earth. And if they should die without Him, they'll be eternally lost. Now, how can people be so careless with their eternal destiny? Well, one answer is what we just talked about. They get so caught up with the good things of life that they neglect thinking about the life to come. The great deceiver, Satan, he gets them focused on the here and now. And not just bad things, good things. I mean, you do understand that good things can pull you away from the Lord just as much as bad things can. Matter of fact, I've, I've gone through this with my oldest son, Austin. He says, Dad, how, how, why does it seem harder to follow the Lord in prosperity than in need? And so I took him to a couple passages uh, where Moses is talking about the Israelites. And he says, there's coming a day when God is going to give you peace on every side. And you will want for nothing. And you will turn your back on God. What should be the response when God prospers us? Thanksgiving. A grateful heart. Acknowledging that it wasn't us that did it, it was God. Well, that was a side note. Jesus directed this parable of the rich man and Lazarus to the Pharisees who thought they would get into heaven because they were good men. Uh, they were the religious leaders. They were at the synagogue every time the doors were open. How many can remember back over your life growing up that that was true for you? I mean, my dad was a pastor. Every time, if there was a door open at the church, we were going to walk through it, right? Well, that's how they were. Uh, they, they, they studied the law and the prophets. They could quote lengthy sections of it. We're talking whole books they would memorize. Uh, um, they, they participated in all of the annual feasts and the holy days of the Jewish faith. They gave 10% or more of their income to the temple. They called Abraham their father. But the religion was merely outward. 
They didn't want, uh, what they did, they did to impress others. But God wasn't impressed because he saw in their heart that it was just full of pride and hypocrisy. Now, they would have protested that they kept the law, but they were not concerned about that inner heart righteousness before God. Like the rich man in the parable, they were living the good life. Well, they assumed that they would go to heaven. But their love of money had really blinded them to God's perspective. They were in for a rude awakening if they did not repent and take heed to the message of the law and the prophets before they died. Now, as far as we know, the rich man in the parable wasn't guilty of any gross sin. His fault was in living for himself and for this life only, with, with no view to eternity. His sin was not in having money. Abraham is in heaven. Abraham was, at his time, one of the wealthiest men on earth. So money was not the issue. His sin was not, that he did not use his wealth of unrighteousness to make friends for himself so that when his money failed, they would receive him into eternal dwellings. That was our passage just a couple weeks ago. He failed to lay up treasures in heaven, even though the opportunity to do so literally lay at his doorstep every day. He had to walk by Lazarus, but he didn't pay him any mind. Even having Abraham as his father, that wouldn't help him out on judgment day. He had neglected the true message of Moses and the prophets. His faith was a mere profession uh, that, that did not result in obedience. So the message for us this morning is that since present choices determine eternal destiny, in other words, your destiny is going to be determined while you're alive on this earth, not afterwards. It's happening while... That, that determination is going to be made while you're alive. We, because of that, we must repent and believe God's Word, and not be deceived by outward appearances. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, pray that you would uh, just uh, continue to lead us into the paths of righteousness. Help us to see this truth. Uh, Father, you, you say in your high priestly prayer that your Word is truth. So, Lord, fill our hearts with this truth this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit so that we can see clearly and understand that, yes, uh, there really is just two destinies, Father, and it's determined, that, we, that destiny is determined while we are alive on this earth and we cannot put it off. So God, do that work in our hearts and we'll give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's really three major lessons of this passage. Uh, the first one, number one, there are two and only two eternal destinies. Two. Jesus makes it plain that there are two eternal destinies, heaven and hell. Heaven is pictured in the parable in the common Jewish symbolism of a messianic banquet. We saw this back in chapter 13 of Luke. Now, at a banquet in that culture, the guests reclined at the table, generally leaning on their right elbow. And when everybody did that, you could lean your head back and you would be on the bosom of the person behind you. And so they think that this is a messianic banquet that Jesus is talking about here because Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. He's right there next to uh, Abraham. That's the father of the faith. And, and Lazarus is enjoying rest, comfort, fellowship, delivered from the trials that he had known in this life. Now, while we're not going to be perpetually eating in heaven, although that might be heaven for some, that's the picture here just to show us that it will be a place of eternal rest and enjoyment. Now, whatever heaven is like, you can be sure that it won't be boring. 
You may have seen pictures of, you know, saints sitting on clouds playing harps for the rest of eternity. That doesn't sound too exciting to me. Paul says that we will actually be judging angels. Okay? We don't know all that God has in store for those who love Him, but we do know that He will give us meaningful and fulfilling activity. I believe that God has given us uh, some of the most enjoyable things, activities here on this earth as just a little foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. We'll be free from all sin, free from its devastating consequences, both our sins and sins of others against us. Sin will simply not exist in heaven. God Himself will dwell among us. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Heaven will be infinitely better than the very best life that you can imagine here on this earth. But the Bible, and especially Jesus, makes it plain that there is also a place of eternal torment called hell. Do you know that Jesus actually talks about hell twice as much as he does about heaven? Well, here, Jesus uses the Greek word Hades, all right? Uh, in, in, in the Hebrew, it's Sheol, Hades and Sheol. Now, scholars debate whether Hades or Sheol is, Sheol is referring to the realm of the dead, which is literally what it means, the realm of the dead, and it has separate compartments, one for the righteous and one for the wicked, or whether Sheol and Hades is simply for the wicked. We can't be dogmatic. Scripture just doesn't answer that particular question, but we do know this. We can say with certainty that hell is not a place, that it is a real place, and that you do not want to spend eternity there. Sometimes cartoons picture hell as a place where the wicked party throughout eternity. Have you ever seen that? Right? Well, that is just wrong. While the righteous sit up on a cloud in heaven bored. Mark Twain said, I'll take heaven for the climate and hell for the society. Here's the problem. There is no society in hell. Jesus uses really awful word pictures to teach us that it's going to be a, it's a place that is not fun. He refers to it as outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He cites Isaiah, describing hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and you to be thrown into the sea than for you to go into the unquenchable fire. That's in Mark 9. The rich man in the parable says, I am in agony in this flame. If it were a fun place, he would want his brothers to come there be with him. But he doesn't, does he? He doesn't want him to come to this place of torment. Now, the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is not pleasant. But you cannot accept Jesus and reject hell because he taught so plainly and often about it. R.C. Sproul, in one of his books, he wrote, The fact is that virtually every statement in the Bible concerning hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. We cannot take Jesus seriously without also taking seriously what he said regarding eternal punishment. End quote. There's very, very little about hell in the Old Testament. There's very little of hell about hell in the epistles. It's almost that, as if God decided that a teaching this frightening 
that it would not be received from any less authority than that of his own son. Now, because of this teaching, heaven and hell, two distinct places, two distinct realities, there are popular views that we simply have to reject. And these are views that are popular today and have been throughout the ages, you know, in terms of the church. The first is universal universalism. And, and that's just a view that everyone will eventually be saved. The universalist says, a good and loving God could not condemn anyone to hell. There's some good in even the worst people. Well, that might be true. After all, we're made in God's image. And they say that God will take that into account so that no one will be condemned. That's a universal. If you see a universalist church or a universalist Unitarian church, that's their basic belief on eternity. Everybody's going to be saved. Nobody will go to hell. The universalist underestimates both the awful sinfulness of the human heart, but even more so the absolute holiness of God. The rich man in the parable, he wasn't an evil man in, in human terms. He wasn't a mass murderer or a child molester. He wasn't deliberately hurting people. He was simply living for himself, oblivious to the poor man at his gate. And yet here he is in the place of eternal torment. Now clearly, Jesus did not teach that everyone, let alone everyone who isn't terribly evil, would go to heaven. Jesus did not teach that. The, the second popular view that we have to reject is annihilationism. What does it mean to be annihilated? It's basically to cease to exist. Okay? This is a view that God will destroy the unrepentant sinner so that he ceases to exist. In other words, our souls are not immortal. Perhaps God will punish the person for a time proportionate to his sin, but at some point God will say, that's enough, and the person will not suffer eternally. God will annihilate that person's soul. Now, several professing evangelicals, most notably John Stott, they have suggested, if not embraced, this idea. Seventh-day Adventists teach this doctrine. So do Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? Frankly, the idea sounds kind of humane and appealing. Suffer for a while, and then God just, you know, annihilates you. My, my position on this has always been, that just doesn't seem like punishment to me. Sixty-two years ago, I didn't exist. Well, I guess I did. I'll be 62 here in a few months. I was, I was in my mother's womb. 65 years ago, I didn't exist. Was that a punishment? No, I had no knowledge of it. To cease to exist, that's, that's no punishment. Well, like I said, it sounds humane. It sounds appealing. I cannot dodge Matthew 25, verse 46. Here's where Jesus uses the same word eternal twice in one verse, and he uses it both for eternal punishment and eternal life in the same verse, same word. If we believe in eternal life, we have to believe in eternal punishment. Revelation 20, verse 10, it states that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet will be tormented in the lake of fire and brimstone day and night forever and ever. 
Just five verses later, it states that all of those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, day and night, forever and ever, sure sounds like eternity to me. Well, the third popular view that this parable refutes is the doctrine of purgatory. Both the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, they teach that when a believer dies, unless he has attained a, a, a state of moral perfection on this earth, and very few would claim that, okay, uh, then they go to a, an intermediate place between heaven and hell, where they suffer for their sin until all of their sin is purged away, then they can go to heaven. Now, the sufferings vary according to the guilt and the impenitence of the sufferer. Gifts and services to the church, prayers on behalf of the deceased, and masses provided by friends and family can all shorten the amount of time that one spends in purgatory. Now, if anyone was a candidate for purgatory, this rich man certainly was. As I said, he wasn't a bad man. He called Abraham his father. That show his, shows his devotion to the Jewish faith. He was concerned about his five brothers' eternal destiny. But he wasn't in purgatory, was he? With a chance to get into to heaven after he suffered for a while. He was in hell. And there was a great chasm fixed so that he could not cross over. Now, the doctrine of purgatory is not in Scripture. It comes from the apocryphal, apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees. Uh, it undermines the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. It actually adds human works to Christ's finished work on the cross. So, while it is a hard doctrine to fathom, both intellectually and emotionally, we cannot say that we believe in Jesus and the Bible and at the same time reject the doctrine of eternal hell. So there are two and only two eternal destinies, heaven and hell. Well, second major point, the basis for a, personal's, for a person's eternal destiny is fixed in this present life. In other words, while we are alive. Two points under this one. A, we see the fact of a fixed destiny. There, there is a great chasm that has been fixed between those who are in heaven and those who are in hell so that none can cross from one side to the other. There's no crossing. You're in one or the other for good. Now, not only does that mean that there is no such thing as purgatory, it also means that there's no second chance after death. Romans 9, 27 says it pretty explicitly. Is that it is appointed for man uh, once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now, some, someone has said, and it's probably true, there are no unbelievers in hell. They just believed too late. They're going to they're gonna come, just as Jesus says, every knee and every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So they will be believers, but they just believed too late. Now, in the parable... Lazarus died and the angels came to him and took him to heaven. And like I said, I, you know, I, I'm hoping Carlos just experienced that just a few hours ago. Um, how magnificent is that? The, the rich man died and was buried and he was in hell in the flames. Now since it was a parable and it's designed to illustrate really just one central truth, Jesus pictures the final outcome without spelling out the details about future resurrections of the body. 
Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul tells us as believers that to be absent from the body is to what? To be present with the Lord. There's no such thing as soul sleep where we wait for the resurrection of our bodies at His second coming. Now, the souls of unbelievers, just like the rich man, they go immediately uh, at death into a place of conscious torment to await the great white throne judgment when their bodies are raised and then thrown into the lake of fire. Now, before death, a person can move from spiritual death to spiritual life. Okay? Uh, Paul talks about this in, in, in Colossians 1. He says, He has transferred us from the domain of darkness to, um, to, his, to, the, hmm, to the kingdom of His beloved Son. All right, so we're talking about salvation, yes. And that's when it occurs, during this life. Well, uh, a person can do that. But once a person dies, his eternity is fixed. He goes either to heaven or to hell. And there's no crossing over from one place to the other. But B, we also see the basis of a fixed destiny. And that basis is repentance and faith in the testimony of God's Word. Okay, that hasn't changed. Now, a superficial reading of the story might lead you to believe that uh, if you're rich and comfortable in this life, you're going to go to hell. And if you're poor and miserable, that you're going to go to heaven, you know, kind of just to even things out. But that would contradict other scriptures that we're well aware of. And even the story itself, because the wealthy Abraham, where is he? He's in heaven. The rich man's problem was not that he was rich, but that he did not repent of his sin of squandering his riches on himself and begin to use them as God would have him to do, to make those friends for eternity, for eternity. In other words, invest in God's kingdom. Now, the rich man knew that his brothers needed to do what he had not done, namely, to repent and to be persuaded to believe the message of Moses and the prophets. Now, I covered this a couple of weeks ago, but when, when, when the first century Jew, when they talked about Moses and the prophets... That is a way that they're referring to the whole of their Scripture, which for us, we call today the Old Testament. That's all they had, was the Old Testament. They called it Moses and the Prophets or the Law and the Prophets because those are the two major categories of the Old Testament. So that's how they refer to it, the Law and the Prophets or Moses and the Prophets. Now, the Apostle Paul, he summarized his preaching as solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of two things, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two things, repentance towards God. He is the one we have sinned against and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a turning of the whole person from sin to God. Now, saving faith, that, that's simply trusting the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son, Jesus. Now, Jesus offered Himself as the penalty for our sins. A person who has truly believed Christ, or believed in Christ as Savior, will live a life of repentance and ultimately growth in holiness. Now, the fact that this rich man never showed concern for Lazarus, even though he had to walk by him every day of his life, that's ample ev evidence that his faith was an empty profession. He had never repented of his selfishness. 
Now, the rich man may have protested, well, how was I supposed to know that I should take care of this poor man at my gate? Well, God's word is sufficient witness to lead a person to repentance. When the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers, Abraham replies that they, that they, need, they have what they need to repent, namely Moses and the prophets or the Old Testament. But the rich man pro, pro, protests, saying, in effect, no, that's not enough. They need more than that. They need something more spectacular, something miraculous. Send them a man risen from the dead to preach to them, and then they will repent. How does Abraham respond? He insists that Scripture is a sufficient witness. If they won't believe Scripture, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Now, sometimes if you're, you're witnessing to a person, they may say, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. Folks, that ain't nothing but a smokescreen. The Bible bears witness to many miracles, and foremost, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is sufficient evidence to believe the apostolic testimony of the resurrection. If a person won't read and believe the Bible, he's really got a deeper problem. It's a moral problem. You see, repentance, it's a moral issue. It's not an intellectual issue. The rich man had known what God's Word says about concern for the poor and needy, but he chose to ignore the hurting man that was on his doorstep. In effect, he was saying to God, you know, if you'd just given me someone from the dead to warn me, then I wouldn't be in this place now. But the fact is, he didn't want to be inconvenienced in his comfortable lifestyle as to be able to take care of this poor man. Invariably, when you're sharing the gospel with a person and they raise an intellectual problem, most likely that is a smokescreen as well. Uh, repentance isn't having all of your intellectual questions answered. Now, sometimes there are people that have legitimate questions about Christianity. And if you can answer those, you, you've taken down the barriers that were stopping them. Most of the time... Those types of things, those type of comebacks, you know, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? That's a smokescreen. They simply don't want to submit. So repentance isn't a matter of having all of your intellectual questions answered. Repentance and faith in Christ, they hinge on the recognition that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. If that's not there, neither repentance or faith are going to happen to recognize your sin. So we need to make it clear to people that if they die without repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ, right, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are fixing their eternal destiny in hell, not in heaven. So there are two and only two eternal destinies, heaven and hell. And the basis for a person's eternal destiny is fixed by his choices in this life. In other words, that decision is made while we are alive, not afterwards. Well, number three, it is possible to be deceived about your eternal destiny by outward appearances. One key to understanding this passage is to go back to verse 15, which is a couple verses before our passage today. The second half says, That which is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Well, we understand that to be true. In the eyes of men, the rich man was successful and, and Lazarus was the loser, right? 
The rich man lived well. He enjoyed the finest things in life. Lazarus was a miserable wretch. I mean, the dogs were licking his sores. You can't get much worse than that. But the irony is, Lazarus was eternally rich. Where was he? In heaven with Abraham and the rest of the saints. And the rich man was eternally bankrupt. Where was he? In hell, in the torment of the flame. Now, it's interesting that the rich man is left unnamed in the parable. In this world, he was probably well-known and renowned for his wealth. But nobody would have known the poor beggar's name. Nobody would have cared. But in God's sight, the rich man is left unnamed. And the poor beggar is named Lazarus. Do you know what Lazarus means? It means God has helped. And we know that's true because God had helped him to be saved. He's in heaven. So God had helped him the best way possible. Well, the point is, it's easy to be deceived by present outward appearances into thinking that you or someone else that you know is well off simply because of career success. You look at them and go, oh yeah, they're doing fine. When in fact, you may not be rich before God. Have you laid up eternal treasures in heaven? If not, then you're really bankrupt in the worst sense of the world. So don't be, don't, don't, don't be deceived into pursuing financial success at the expense of your soul. Now, there are many fine Christian men who are wealthy, and I mean wealthy. They've kept their priorities where they need to be. But don't go chasing money as if that is the answer. If God blesses you, and in the end you get wealthy, use that wealth to honor Him. If you chase it for the sake of getting wealthy, you will neglect God. Don't, don't let that happen. A Sunday school teacher told his class the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and at the end he said, well, boys, which would you rather be, Lazarus or the rich man? And one little boy piped up, well, I'd like to be rich, or I mean, I'd like to be uh, the rich man while I'm living and Lazarus when I die. Who wouldn't? That sounds like a deal, doesn't it? Live your life any way you want and then still go to heaven? But you can't live for selfish pleasure in this life disobeying God's Word, and then expect to live with God in heaven when you die. Here's the good news. When you repent of your sins and, and live in obedience to Jesus Christ, you find great pleasure. You find great joy, both for time, for the here and now, and for eternity, no matter what your earthly circumstances are. Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Two very different destinies lie before you. And there is a great chasm fixed between. So there will be no crossing over. I urge you today, choose life. Choose to follow Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for just the challenge of your word. Uh, God, uh, for many of us in here who know you, we are glad that, yes, when we die, we are going to be ex escorted by angels into your presence. And, and uh, deep down, we long for that day uh, when all of our troubles will be over. And Father, we will be in your presence, uh, immediate presence forevermore. And we thank you for that. 
But at the same time, uh, God, I ask that you would help us to be mindful of those around us who do not know, do not know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, uh, use us. That's what we're left here on this earth for, Father, is to bring you honor and glory by sharing the good news. So help us do it. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you're out there and you do not know Jesus Christ, like I said, we've got two, real only one real hard reality. Mankind in general doesn't think about, you know, what happens when they die. And when they do, it's usually something good. As I said, oh God, you know, he, He's a God of love. He loves everybody. I, I'm going to be fine, blah, 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 whatever. And you don't want to get to that point and die and then realize that you had it all wrong. There is the one reality that we're, the, the hard reality that we're talking about this morning. There is a hell, and it will be populated with those who do not follow God, who do not know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So I'm urging you this morning, if you know that you're not a believer, today's the day. Paul says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. You're, take, you're flipping that, you're flipping that uh, diamond over, over the edge of that ocean liner, just betting that you're going to live plenty long enough, you'll take care of this down the road. Not necessarily so. Get it right with God today. If you're a believer, you can praise Him that yes, you know God and that when you die, you will go to heaven. But too many of us, we have this exclusion, exclusionary, I don't know, sense about us where we don't get concerned about maybe it's a family member, a sibling, a parent, um, a teacher, a neighbor, whoever, that they don't, know, they don't know Jesus. And they seem to be perfectly happy. They're doing fine in this world. Ask God to give you eyes to imagine them after they die. Where are they going to spend eternity? Could it be that God wants to use you to open their eyes? Paul gets it right. Paul gets everything right. What am I saying? In, in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it, the it, gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's not miracles. It's not answering intellectual problems. It's the gospel. And that's our duty to share as believers, to tell the lost about Jesus. So if you don't have those type of eyes, ask God to give you those eyes. Because I promise you, you're rubbing elbows every day with people that do not know Jesus. And if they were to die, their eternity is fixed and they cannot cross over. They need to hear about Jesus. Ask God to give you that type of heart that sees people, sees lost people as God does. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.